Welcome to RUF. Um, this is your first time. My name is Sammy. I'm the RUF campus minister here. And we are going through the book of Revelation this spring. And tonight we come to a passage. Uh, we're actually looking at two chapters. We're going to kind of scale it down to a, a doable passage tonight. Revelation 6 and 7. If you want to follow along in your Bible, you can. Uh, otherwise, it's printed on your handout. I'm going to get right down to it tonight. So here's what John sees. Now, you have to understand, Revelation, uh, one of my friends likes to say, Revelation is a uh, theology for visual learners. Uh, we've said week by week it's a book by, uh, from Jesus about Jesus, but one of the other ways to think about it is it's all these images and illusions. It's very visually oriented. And so one of the ways you do Revelation is to, it's basically you, you frame it like John looks, and then he looks, and then he looks, and then he looks. And we're in 6 and 7, and he's still, we're still at the throne, but he sees something new. And I'm going to read it for us. Revelation, starting in verse 6. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. We're going to skip down to 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And after this, I looked and behold... A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let me pray for us, and I want to talk. Really, there's a lot tonight I want to talk about, but let me pray for us first. Lord, we do. We thank you that you have gathered us here um, for a specific reason. Lord, you want uh, each one who is here to be here. You want each one here uh, to hear from your word by your spirit. Lord, we confess that um, in our natural state, in our sinful state, in our fallen state, uh, we cannot understand, much less care about the things of your word. And yet, Lord, we know that when your spirit comes upon us, gives us eyes to see, gives us ears to hear, gives us a heart to receive the gospel, Lord, your, your word comes alive to us in ways that are um, powerful and beautiful. And Lord, we pray that you would be our teacher tonight. We confess that in ourselves we are poor, wretched, blind, needy. We are sinners And, Lord, we have nothing to offer you. And yet, Lord, you have everything to offer us, all of the grace that we need right now, all of the wisdom we need right now, all of the truth that we need right now. Lord, you have it for us. And so, Lord, would you come teach us from this passage tonight? We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I spent uh, three years in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, finishing uh, MDiv in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, during that time, I worked part of that time as a youth pastor in Charlotte, but then I got not fired from that job. That's dramatic. I got let go. We restructured I had, through no fault of my own, and I had to find work. So one of my friends started working at Starbucks uh, and near, if you're familiar with Charlotte, near um, South Park Mall. And so I was like, I need a job. I'll go interview for it. And I got the job. And immediately, it was the best thing that happened to me in seminary, because I was in this Christian bubble, but it forced me to interact with these people who didn't believe in God, who were was straight up you know, self-proclaimed agnostics, atheists. It was just a great, great experience. Became really good friends with a lot of them. And there's this one girl, Sarah, who went to Catholic school, and we were talking about, we would often talk about the things of the gospel, because they were intrigued that here was this seminary student working at Starbucks, what do you really believe about Jesus and the Bible? And I remember this one particular conversation, we were talking about her relationship, or lack of relationship with God. She considered herself agnostic. And she said, here's, let me tell you, can I get personal for a second? And I said, yeah. She said, here's why I don't believe in God. She said, when I was in middle school for two years, I got bullied at my school every single day. And every night I would go home and I would pray to God to make it stop. And nothing ever changed. And she said, I cannot, I will not believe in a God who could see a situation like mine and do nothing about it. Now, you and I have, maybe you're in this room, you've got your own version of that. How could God let this happen in my life? How could God let that happen in my life? Where is he? Where was he? We have our own questions. 
And it, bring, it brings up the bigger question that Revelation 6 and 7 are all about, which is the question, it's, it's, a, it's a huge question, it's a common question, it's an old question, which is this, why does God let bad things happen to good people? I don't mean perfect people, but I mean people who are really trying, people who in Sarah's case were really praying, people who are really seeking. Why do bad things happen seemingly all around us? Just, I mean, we, we are living in the wake of one of the worst school shootings we've ever seen. Why did God let that happen? Is, is there a God? If, if, we can, if, a God, if God is who he, said he says he is, how in the world can he be cool with, be down with Parkland, Florida, right? And what we have to understand is Revelation 6 and 7 are all about suffering. It's all about, we've kind of learned the last couple of weeks, here, last week if you were with us, here's this scroll, right? It's all of our stories, all of our heartaches gathered into one. And Jesus is the only one who can hold the scroll, right? We said Jesus is the only one who's powerful enough, who's good enough. And yet, we see tonight that in those scrolls are our stories full of pain, heartache, senseless tragedy, senseless loss. And what do we do with it? What do we do with our suffering? What do we do when we look into the world and we see suffering? And if we're ever going to make sense of it, we have to have Revelation 6 and 7. So there are three things. We're really going to talk tonight, three things about suffering that I want you to see from Revelation 6 and 7. Here's the first. I want you to see the inevitability of suffering. Second, I want you to see the problem of suffering. And then lastly, I want you to see the end of suffering. So first, the inevitability of suffering. So when we're looking at this passage, we have to remember, if we're not careful, this is where Revelation starts to get crazy. And this is where, if you've been around the church long enough, this is where uh, interpretations of Revelation start getting really crazy. We have these six scrolls, and people go wild with that. We have these four horsemen of the apocalypse, and people go really crazy with that. And then we have the 144,000, and people go definitely crazy with that. And let me just remind us, if we're not careful, we could go crazy too. But remember, the book of Revelation is not a book. If you haven't been with us, you need to hear this. It is not a book primarily concerned about the future. It is a book primarily concerned about comforting Christians in their present suffering and tribulation. So we have to remember, as we get into Revelation 6 and 7, we are talking about not some time in the future. We are talking about here and now, and in their case, their time that they were living in right then and right now. It's written to people in great suffering. And the message of Revelation is things are not as they seem. That's the whole message of the book, right? That they're not as they seem. The message of Revelation, you have to understand this because we twist this sometimes. It is not things really aren't as bad as they seem. That's not the message. We're going to see in this passage, no, things are worse. Things are actually, the the Bible is unflinchingly... uh, unflinchingly real about how bad life is, right? Neither is the message, if you love Jesus enough, he's going to stop bad things from happening in your life. It is clear in the, in, in the message of Revelation that is not what's happening. We, there's a part of that passage we didn't read that's all about martyrs and people who are killed just because they're Christians. Loving Jesus isn't any escape from the suffering of the world. And so the image I want to focus on tonight is that it's going to help us kind of make sense of what we need to understand about suffering are these four horsemen. This is the strange part. We could do a lot, but we have to, for time's sake, focus on this one image to help us unpack and understand suffering. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, when you look at these four horsemen, we're just going to think, who in the world are they? And there are a couple things we have to see from the get-go. There are four of them, which means it, it represents, in this passage, it talks about the four corners of the earth. What you need to know is these four horsemen ride into, from all, from the beginning of history, they ride all around the world doing their thing. North, south, east, and west. They are everywhere in every inch of the world. And what you have to understand is each one of these horsemen represent a specific 
kind of suffering. Let's look at them for a second, one by one. In other words, the big image we have to have is these are four horsemen that are riding roughshod, if we say that way, through the world, causing all kinds of suffering and destruction and sadness and grief. So let's look at them one by one. Here's the first one is in verse two. There's a white horse and the rider is wearing a crown and he's carrying a bow and he's come to conquer, right? Uh, He comes to oppress. But it's interesting. One commentator points out, why is he wearing white? And one guy has to take, he says, he's wearing white because he's coming actually in the name of what he believes is a good cause. Often case, he's coming in the name of religion. That's why one part of scripture says that Satan sometimes masquerades an angel of white. So here's this white rider. And what does he come to bring? He comes to bring conquest. He comes to bring oppression. He comes to, to gain power and rule over people in ways that are not good, healing, or true. Think about it in our world a couple of ways. You can think ISIS. ISIS, it doesn't feel like it's in the news cycle as much as it was two or three years ago, but think about all the, the folks that they have conquered and tortured and beheaded in the name of the cause, they would say, their interpretation of Islam and Allah. Or think about just in our own corner. Think about the Christian right. Think about, even in, in conversations that we're having now as a country, I don't really care where you land, you land, but we can just say sometimes there are people in the Christian right who are hyper, hyper politically conservative, but when you challenge them, it, it, when, you, when you strip everything down, sometimes it seems, without impugning motive, that they care far more about power, positions of power and money than they do care about serving or loving the poor. And there's a kind of oppression, because it means the church, the biggest churches often do the least for the poor or poor parts of town. Uh, I think about, I've been watching, you can certainly think about Nazi Germany, right? If you've ever read how Nazi Germany became a thing, read about all the other people, all the people who look the other way, or all the people who secretly kind of believed in the cause of nationalism and let horrible, the most horrific thing happening in the 20th century happen. Or even think about, I've been watching, I've been a huge Ken Burns kick, um, and so I've been watching the West. And there's a part of our, our history I didn't know, where we, uh, it was before Trail of Tears, where we had essentially stolen, stolen land from Native Americans. The part I didn't know is there's a part of our history where we actually stole the children of Native Americans, and we, we set up these like 16 or 17 military camps throughout the country, and we essentially tried to make these Native American children as white as we could to, to speak English. They were punished and, and whipped if they spoke their native tribe, their tribal tongue. And we tried to make them as white as possible. And you, can you imagine what that would feel like as a Native American parent for, the, for these white, you know, U.S. men to come steal your children as part of our heritage? So the white horse, and here's what you have to understand, is the root of so much struggle and the root of so much suffering comes at the hand of the white horse comes in the name of oppression, comes in the name of conquest. Then we keep going. Verse 4, there's a second horse. It's a bright red horse, and his rider is carrying this huge sword, and he comes to take literally peace from the earth, and he comes to bring war, and he comes to bring murder and violence, which is why he comes to shed, shed blood. That's why he's bright red. He comes that blood will be spilled in his name, right? He rode in full force at Douglas High, Two weeks ago in Parkland, Florida, uh, there, there was such a, so much blood senselessly shed, right? Uh, the root of so much violence leads to suffering. And it doesn't have to simply be bloodshed. We could talk about all kinds of abuse. We could talk about all kinds of violence that happens that does not bring bloodshed. And the red horse still rides on. Then there's a third rider. Bear with me. Verse 5, there's a black horse 
whose rider is carrying a set of scales. This one gets weird. Literally, it says, a quart of wheat for denarius and three quarts of barley for denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What in the world does that mean? Here's what you have to understand, basically. Basically, a denarius was a day's wages. And yet the food portions were not enough to even feed one person for a day. So we have to understand what's happening is the writer is, is basically declaring, he's, he's promoting greed. He's saying there, there should be economic injustice. Don't care about the poor. Let them not even have enough money to cover their own basic needs, but protect the oil and wine. Why? Because the oil and wine were for the 1%. Uh, listen to these. I was looking at this today. Listen to some of these stats about, because global economic inequality is a thing. And in fact, it's more of a thing in 2018 than it's been maybe ever in the world. Listen to these stats for a second. These stats were done by Oxfam, which is a, a <clears throat> basically a development charity. Here's what they said. Consider these stats. Uh, 82% of the global wealth created in 2017 went to the most wealthy 1%. 82% of the global wealth went to the wealthiest 1%. And 42 of that 1% own as much wealth as 3.7 billion people who make up the poor half of the world's population. Um, it is very true, even in 2018, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Y'all, we, I don't know if you've ever explored Colombia, but have you ever, like, even just as simple as, have you ever heard of these things called food deserts? Where literally there are parts of Colombia where there's not even a decent grocery store, where they do their, buy their food from Dollar General, or from, like, you know, uh, something like that. They don't even have access to decent food. Like, that's happening in our city, right? There's massive, so the, the black horse represents injustice, inequality. Both financially, but it was, certainly we can include racially. We can include all kinds of injustices, socially and inequalities. And then finally, verse 8, there's a last rider, a pale horse, whose rider is death personified, right? And he comes to bring all kinds of death into this world. Uh, he just did so on campus last week. There was a 20-year-old from Greenville, South Carolina, who grew up next door to my brother and sister-in-law. And literally, they watched him grow up from when he was 10. Well, last week, he overdosed uh, on heroin in his room. And my sister-in-law went to the funeral, and she said she, she couldn't hold it together when the mom read the letter of her 10-year-old son telling her when he grew up, when he grew up all he wanted to do was marry, marry his mom. Uh, my, my, literally, my nephew has this, guy, this, kid's, this 20-year-old kid's old baseball stuff. That's what he, he gave it to him before they moved uh, to another place in Greenville. And there's nothing, we, you know this, you, you've maybe experienced this, there's nothing like parents having to bury a child. There's so much death that happens all around us, and it is the root of so much suffering. And here is the point, here's the point you have to see, is that suffering is inevitable. There's no way to avoid suffering. Now, here's what's funny for us, like, a lot of us have avoided some suffering, like, I, I can't, can honestly say, I, don't, I can't, I've never had a, been in a situation where I haven't had enough money to know where my next meal is coming from. Uh, I can say I've not experienced the injustice of one of my family members being unjustly incarcerated for life over some trumped-up charge. I can say I've never experienced uh, someone in my family being murdered. Part of our safety, like, if we had grown up in Rwanda, you and I would have a much deeper, a deeper and different category of justice than we do in America, right? We have been pretty safe, especially if you grew up in the South and you grew up in a pretty white, privileged home. And so we have to grapple with that. But we still have to understand that even, even that said, suffering's coming our way if it hasn't already. And Revelation isn't saying that to scare you. It's not saying that to ramp up your anxiety. Uh, but it is saying it in a weird way to be comforting. 
Why is that comforting? What it's comforting about the Bible is it is unflinchingly realistic about suffering. That life in this world is hard. To put it in the words of my favorite rapper DMX in the best song of all time, Slippin', to live is to suffer. To quote the great philosopher DMX. I want to bark right now, but I'm not. Uh, to live is to suffer, right? We know this. Uh, if you don't know this, you've got to read your Bible more. Go read the story of Job. What this does for us, why this is a gift to us, is it provides space and room for you to grieve, for you to be sad, for you to be angry. Uh, this is why I love the book of Ruth. Do you know that story? Naomi loses her two sons and husband in a very short span of time, and she goes home. Do you remember what she does? She says, my name's no longer Naomi. Call me Mara. And literally in the Hebrew, it means call me bitter. And you know what? God never in the book of Ruth rebukes her for that. Never. In fact, what he does instead is he sends two faithful friends her way. One named Ruth, one named Boaz. So suffering's inevitable, but, but, but admitting this doesn't just make us human. It really is an essential part of faith. But second, there's a problem, the problem of suffering. Uh, this brings us to the, the classic problem, which is if, if God, here's the classic, the way it's been formulated. If God is good, why does he let bad things happen? And if God is sovereign or powerful, why doesn't he stop bad things from happening, right? This is a real dilemma for Christianity. If God is who the Bible says he is, if he's on the throne and he is full of grace and he is, full of, he is completely in control, then how do we explain the bad things that happen in our lives and the bad things that happen in our world? Uh, there's to switch gears for a second. There's actually an episode of The Office that really nails this in a surprising way. Uh, it's the fun run episode, if you remember it. It's where um, Michael Scott hits Meredith with his car, and it, it leads to this. He believes that if you haven't watched this episode in a while, go back and watch it. It leads to Michael Scott thinking that the office is cursed. And there's this beautiful exchange of lines that I just want to focus on in your handout. Because at the same time, this is when Dwight is poisoned, Angela's cat sprinkles, and so Angela's grieving. Uh, Kelly's still upset that Ryan hasn't made a move on her. And here's how that conversation flows, because Michael gathers everybody to talk about why the place is cursed. And it's really this profound moment. Here's how the conversation goes. Angela says this. She says, Sprinkles never hurt a soul. God, in your infinite wisdom, how could you do this? She wasn't ready. She had so much left to accomplish. Then Michael says... You spend your whole life trying to get people to like you, and then you run over one person with your car, and it's not even one of the popular ones, and everyone gets in your case, doesn't make any sense, God is dead. And then Kelly says, if there was a God, then Ryan and I would be married by now. And then Michael says, maybe believing in God was the mistake. And what's, I mean, it's really, really, like, great writing on a lot of levels, because it's really funny, but it's also really true and insightful, I think, in the way that we sometimes process this question. Uh, that suffering really does create this kind of crisis of faith for us. And this is where I think Revelation is oddly helpful, because I think we're left with, okay, maybe God's good, but he's not powerful. Maybe he's powerful, but he's not really that good. Or, in the words of Michael Scott, maybe God is dead. Maybe the whole thing, believing in him, is a mistake. And I think Revelation gives us a key. Look back to verse 2, where it says, uh, the white horse. Look at what it says about the crown. It says the crown was given to him. Look back at verse 4, at the black horse. It says he was permitted to take peace from the earth. And then again, look back at verse 8 with the pale horse. He was given authority. Revelation 6 is saying something really hard, but something really important. And it's this, that the four horsemen can only do 
what the God on the throne and the lamb next to him permit them to do. In other words, they wear bridles whose reins are ultimately controlled by God himself. Another way to say it is uh, evil has a leash. And God is absolutely in control. And these four horsemen can only do what God permits or allows them to do. Now, if you're paying attention, there are some questions that should be bubbling up in your mind. If they're not, you're not paying attention. And these are some of the questions. So you're saying God is the author of evil? No. We go back to Genesis 3. Evil came into the world through the suggestion and temptation of Satan, who had already fallen with with his homies. And then... Through our own foolish, sinful choices, evil really, these four horsemen were created. God didn't create the four horsemen. We did, through the suggestion and temptation of Satan. This is, let's talk about this for a second. We can't get into everything, and I'd love to talk to you. If this is really a question that's bothering you, I'd love to talk more. But let's just talk about this for a second. When Scripture, when scripture says that God ordains suffering, it doesn't mean he creates or even endorses it. But what it does mean, this is what's supposed to be comforting these Christians that John is writing to. This is the comforting thoughts. It should be comforting to us that God controls it absolutely and uses it to accomplish his own purposes. I think this is, I heard one preacher say one time that the most devastating realization that's going to happen for Satan is going to be the, the realization at the end of all time and the last day when he realizes all of the things he was trying to destroy and undo were ultimately still used purely to accomplish the purposes of God. In other words, it all bends back to the promises and purposes of God. Um, now, Genesis fifty twenty, I think, is the perfect place. You remember that story? Jo- Joseph, he's been betrayed by his brothers. He's cast into the pit and left for dead. You remember the story? Then his brothers get uh, the whole country goes into famine and starvation. Joseph, in the meantime, through the way God worked his story, is in Egypt, and he's serving at the uh, right hand of Pharaoh, and he's been made governor of Egypt. And remember, there's that incredible scene in Genesis 50 where, I mean, it's, it's a really dramatic scene where the brothers are coming to the governor, Joseph, but they don't recognize him. But they're asking him for food from the storehouses. But Joseph definitely recognizes them, and he's wrestling, because those dudes have wounded him. I mean, they talk about four horsemen riding through Joseph's life. They were right there with the horsemen riding through Joseph's life. But remember what Joseph says, Genesis fifty twenty. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, here's the hard part, is I think sometimes this is where we mess up as Christians. Is we want to say, all your suffering, let's tie a little bow on it. Every bad thing happens for a reason. And I think the implication of that is you're going to get to see it. You're going to get to see the good that God is doing through your profound and heartbreaking suffering. Can we just say, no, that's not typical. Genesis 50, 20 is not a promise. It's a story, and we need that story, but that's not always the way God works. A lot of times God keeps us in the dark when it comes to suffering. There are a lot of times where God doesn't say a whisper a word of explanation as to how something that we've experienced is going to turn out for good. And I think it makes us wrestle with this other question. And I, and I love the way that Tim Keller says this, because here's what this means. Just because we can't see a reason for the awful thing that happened, it doesn't mean that there isn't one. And I think I love the way Tim Keller says this. Here hand out. He said, if you've got an infinite God big enough to be mad at for the suffering in the world, then you also have an infinite God big enough to have reasons for it that you can't think of. But here's what this means for us. It means two things. It means that you and I, should be well-versed 
and the best at saying two different phrases. On the one hand, we should be the best at saying, I know. And I don't mean that like we know what God is doing, but I mean that in I know that this is harder than you can, than you can even fathom or speak right now. Or things like this. Um, I know life is hard right now. I know that what you're going through has to be harder than anything that I can imagine. Um, I know what that feels like. To have panic attacks that are so bad you have to pull off the side of the road. I know what that feels like. To be so depressed that you can't get out of bed, much less face the day. We, Christians, listen, Christians, if, if we believe this understanding of suffering, we are going to be the most empathetic people. We're going to be able to say, I know. Not like I'm, I know what God is doing in your life, but like I've been there, brother. I've been there, sister. And if I haven't been there, I know that's got to be way harder than I could possibly imagine. I know. And the other phrase we're supposed to be, we should be the greatest in the world at saying is I don't know. I don't know why God let your dad leave your mom. I don't know why God let your mom die of cancer. I don't know why God let your friend die in that tragic car wreck. I don't know why God won't simply make your anxiety or your depression go away. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not Jesus. I'm not God. Um, the place that this came home for me uh, is when our youngest named Sadie, uh, she's uh, six, about to be seven next week. Um, but when she was, when Alyssa was pregnant with her, we, uh, Alyssa went for a routine. Some of you heard me tell the story, but I'm going to tell it again. She went for a routine checkup in Statesboro, Georgia. They caught something. And caught something to the point where the person doing the ultrasound ran out of the room, got her, you know, her authority, her higher supervisor, came back in and they said, we don't want to alarm you, but we, when we're doing the ultrasound, we noticed there's a part of Sadie's brain that has not developed, uh, her, her cerebellum. And we, we need you to go to Savannah today, uh, preferably, or tomorrow as soon as you can, to get a second opinion to figure out what's happening. So we go to Savannah, I think it was like the next day, we meet with the doctors, and they say, okay, here's the deal. We've run the tests, and we figured out that Sadie's got this condition called Dandy Walker. And it's a really unique condition where part of the cerebellum doesn't develop. And we, the spectrum is this. The spectrum is she could go on to live a normal life. She just Her fine motor skills will be a little challenged. She's not going to like play in the WNBA. Uh, or she's going to die. Like some of, these, uh, some of these cases, they die within a, about a week of birth. So you can imagine, like my wife and I, who had had three healthy babies up to this point, we're like, well, what are you, like, what, what are you doing? Uh, we then go to a, a, a third opinion in Charleston, South Carolina, where we're encouraged, highly encouraged to pursue abortion uh, because we couldn't predict the outcome. And so my wife and I are watching this doctor say to us, we really encourage you to abort this baby. And we said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to take the chance of seeing what this condition looks like. And kind of just say to you, when you're in the middle of something like that, and you guys, I, I'm assuming most of you don't have kids, so you're not, you can't maybe relate to that. But when you're in the middle of something that is really dark, really scary, you feel like what I felt was um, completely out of control, completely overwhelmed, scared to death, and numb. Those were all the feelings I was having. And I remember that sometimes when you're in those seasons, you don't get answers. Like the Lord never showed up and said, all right, here's the, here's the, the blueprint of Sadie's life. Here's exactly where it's going. That's not what he did. But the Lord did show up. And he offers something, I think, better. He offers his presence. And, and particularly, there was a book I was reading at the time uh, called Gilead. I think every Christian bookstore should burn 
all, well, I'm not going to name authors, but lots of books and just put up Gilead in their place. This is Marilyn Robinson. Uh, but there's a scene in Gilead where um, the dad is wrestling with raising a son that he's, he's going to die before he sees uh, really even be a teenager. And here's what he says about parenting. He says, that is how life goes. We send our children into the wilderness. Some of them on the day they are born, it seems, for all the help we can give them. Some of them seem to be a kind of wilderness unto themselves. But there must be angels there too and springs of water. And this is the line that kills me. Even that wilderness, the very habitation of jackals is the Lord's. Here's our comfort in suffering, is that even our suffering is the Lord's. Even if we don't know why he's let it happen or is letting it happen. This is the last thing I want you to see. We're running over, over time for sure, so I'm going to be quick. The end of suffering. This is the, the hopeful note that Revelation 7 especially gives us. And it's really, very quickly, two things you got to see. First, you have to see your future. Uh, just to work through it quickly, John looks... And there's this elder that says, here, here are the 144,000. Now, this is a number that's symbolic. All you need to know is that it means it's all Christians from all time, before Christ, all believers from all time, before Christ and after. It's 12 times 12, tribes of Israel times apostles times 1,000. It's just a number representing fullness. That's why when John turns around, that's why he says there was a number I couldn't count. It's a massive number. And the thing you have to see is not only is there a massive number that God is sealing from even the terrors of Judgment Day, but that God is doing something in their midst. He is literally wiping tears from their eyes, and he promises there's a day coming where suffering is going to end, where there will be no more oppression, and there will be no more injustice, and there will be no more violence, and there will be no more death. And God promises us that if you belong to Jesus Christ, that day is coming for you. No more anxiety. No more depression. No more of the things in your own heart. No more jealousy. No more lust. There is a world coming that is completely free from suffering. And how is that even possible? Where the key is in verse 14. Look at what it says. Who are these people? The elder asks. And John says, sir, you know. And he says, yes. It's those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Why is that important? The blood of the Lamb. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus is more than familiar with the red horse. He's more than familiar with the white horse. Do you know who killed Jesus? It wasn't the tax collectors and the prostitutes. It was the Pharisees. And it was Pilate. People who were oppressing in the name of religion and in the name of their cause. Jesus is familiar with the black horse. Jesus, at one point in the Gospels, looks at his disciples and says, Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Talk about injustice. Have you ever gone through, have you ever studied the trial of Jesus? All the false accusations? Not to mention the way in which he was crucified with no evidence, no real cause. Jesus is familiar with the black horse of injustice. And he certainly, we know, is familiar with the pale horse. Jesus is the only God, you realize this, Jesus is the only God you and I have ever heard of who has died, who, who can relate to death, and has gone through it. Why? Uh, I'm going to quote my guy, John Stott. He says it as best as I could ever say it. So in your handout, he says this, I can never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one, this is a great question, 
How could one worship a God who was immune to it? But I have, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us, and our sufferings become much more manageable in the light of his. I love the way uh, that question, why does God let bad things happen to good people? I love the way that one, one guy puts it. He only did that once, and he volunteered. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Um, Lord, I pray for my friends. I know in this room someone definitely is wrestling with heartache and suffering that maybe they don't even want to talk about right now. And Lord, I pray that your wounds would speak to theirs. I pray that you would let them wrestle with you. We thank you that you are God that invites our questions and our doubts. And I pray that uh, whoever that is tonight, uh, that you would invite them to come and reason with you, uh, to hear um, that you invite them to even shout their anger at you. Uh, to speak their pain to you, because you are a God, because of the cross, who, who gets it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work in us tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. We all stand and sing our, our final hymn with us, The Sands of Time, Our Sanctity.